Uh, one other moment of family time. I just need to thank you, and you may not realize it here, but um, God's been so generous with us at East Bay Calvary. And if you know anything about Traverse City, which I've come to find out in the last year, is that when summer comes, people go. You realize that the sun comes out and the boats are out and the beaches are filled, and, and I've just been so blown away, friends, by your faithfulness and your consistency with us this summer. And I, I waited till now to say it, because if I said it earlier, then it may have had a reverse effect on us. But this summer, folks, we have averaged 97 more people each week than what we did last summer. And I say praise God for that. I don't know who those three people are that could have made it 100. If you find them, would you tell them that they need to get in church now and make this thing different? But thank you so much for your, your faithfulness with us. I think we've learned and we've studied and we've worshiped and we've enjoyed it together. I want to uh, have you grab your copy of the scriptures or your iPod or iPad, your phone, and um, would you find the book of 2 Kings it's going to be a little bit different find, and not everyone has the same translation. Um, but the book of 2 Kings in chapter 21, if you find that, it'll be uh, in the Old Testament early on. If you kind of open halfway, you'll maybe find Job or Psalms and take a left from there and keep working backward to the book of 2 Kings chapter 21. There are some times when you study a passage and a truth just leaps out to you and grabs you, and this is one of those weeks for me. And then there's these times when the truth reaches out and grabs you, but a weight burdens you because the truth is so significant and challenging, and, and I'm just telling you, folks, I don't know that there has been a week I've experienced where I have sensed the weight of truth more on my heart and shoulders than this week. And, and so I, I threw out an email to say, you know, I really believe today's going to be special. I believe it's going to be significant for us from a, a very seldom looked at passage in all of Scripture and seldom known names in all of Scripture to come such a significant truth. I really think today is monumental I've gone through this, I, I've gone through it frontward and backward, I've cross-referenced it, and this passage is eye-opening, it is enlightening, I'll be honest, it is disturbing, it is challenging, it is upsetting, and all of that rolled into one, and, and I really believe we have something to focus on and pray about together. Here's the book of 2 Kings in chapter 21. We're going to jump into it for a moment, but here's a bit of background. And so if you have your study guide in the back of your worship folder, grab that, and, and we're going to look at this. There's a gap for you to write in whatever things you feel are significant as I give you some background. Last week, we talked about King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was one of the kings of Judah, which is the southern end of the nation of Israel. This was a divided kingdom at this time. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Hezekiah reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah. He stepped in when Judah was in the middle of 
idol worship and they had turned from God and Hezekiah was a good bull in the china shop. He, he stepped in and rolled over these idols. Within three weeks, all of Judah's idol worship was gone. All the idols smashed. All the Asherah poles were torn down. And, and he had put the priests back into work in Judah. And proper worship of Yahweh was instituted. These people were returned again to a right focus on God. And toward the end of his life, Hezekiah was gravely ill. He was about to die. And he cried out to God, would you, would you spare my life? And the prophet Isaiah walked in and told him that God heard his cry and extended his days 15 more years. During those 15 years, in fact, three years into it, he had a son named Manasseh. And let me just tell you that things could not have been more different from Hezekiah to Manasseh. I want to read to you what happened. Since it's been a few moments since you've sat, would you just stand? Let's get the blood flowing. I'll read this while we're standing. I want you to see what occurred in the life of Manasseh that shows this dramatic contrast between what Hezekiah had done and what Manasseh had done as the next king of Judah. Chapter 21 of 2 Kings, starting in verse 1. I'm just going to read down through verse 9. Just follow along in your translation of Scripture. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years his mother's name was Hesvetha. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, he rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Practiced divination sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people didn't listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Wow. It's powerful. It's weighty. 
truthfully, is disturbing. When you sit down, go ahead. We have some items to write in under the background of Hezekiah to Manasseh. So Manasseh took what his dad Hezekiah had done in turning Israel away from idol worship and dependency on these foreign gods. Manasseh turned away from that and turned Judah fully to pagan worship. And just to bullet point some of these things, Manasseh adopted all of the Canaanites' religious practices These high places that you see, these were worship areas that were spread throughout the community. And and Manasseh had reestablished these high places to be places of pagan sacrifice throughout the city. All of the altars to Baal that were torn down, he rebuilt. This Asherah pole, we're wondering, what is this Asherah pole? Well, Asherah is a Canaanite goddess of fertility. And they weren't merely looking to have babies, but truthfully, they really wanted to institute immorality widespread again through Judah. And it came to the point, not only were these Asherah poles developed, but even within the temple of God, folks, because two chapters later it discusses this, there were centers of male prostitutes Within the temple of God, that's how dank, depressed, and in despair worship was in this day. He built altars to idols right in the temple and in the courtyards. He introduced then sorcery, mediums, divination, spiritism. The thing that, oh, this just gets me, is he took his own infant son and sacrificed him to the pagan god Molech, uh, not mentioned in this passage. You wonder, what happened to Isaiah the prophet? Manasseh had him sawn in two. Obviously not during Prophet Appreciation Month. He did away with anyone that was going to speak truth to him. He killed innumerable innocent people in Judah and Jerusalem. And in fact, a little bit later on in the passage, it says this, Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. And here's the worst part of it. You ready? He reigned longer than any other king of Judah. It's like, why why couldn't he have been a short reign? You know, just get this thing over with and get done and let's move on. But he reigned 55 years. You know, we've all heard good ending stories of families or father and sons. One of my favorite feel-good movie is an Oscar-winning production where this father was a bit overprotective of his son who was born with a mild disability. I'm not sure if this rings a bell to you at all, but his son had this mild disability. Dad was overprotective and maybe a bit too overprotective, and the son ended up rebelling and went out on his own. And while his son was out on his own, these individuals came along and captured this son and wanted to use them for their own good. I don't know if it's ringing a bell to you yet or not. 
For months, the dad relentlessly looked for his son, traveling even to the other side of the world, all because he loved him. The son kept trying to escape from his captors and get back to his dad because he realized it wasn't so bad back with dad. Finally, one day, the boy slipped away just at the very same time that his dad came onto the scene. And they had to escape many life-threatening situations in their attempts to get away from the enemy. But together, they managed to be able to do all of that, and they got back home where they belonged and lived happily ever after. Does that movie sound familiar? No. Finding Nemo. Come on. I've got seven children, people. This father-son story, though, is not a happy ending at all. The account of Hezekiah to Manasseh has no feel-good in it. In fact, the ending was foul and grotesque, and there was never a worse recorded time in all of the history of God's people. God's people were worse, even the text mentions, than all of the pagan nations around them. And here's how the Bible shows this contrast. I want to give you two verses that show how radically it went from one to the other. The first verse, which you'll see here, is 2 Kings 18.5. says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. That's how good it was. Then notice the, the contrast in 2 Kings 21, 9. And here's what it says. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than all the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. And, and here's my question. Truthfully, it's, it's just plagued me. How could this happen? How do you go from best to worse, and here's the deal, in one generation. And, and this is why I feel the weight of this message. It is, it is scary, it is crushing to think that everything that you lived for in one generation could be gone. And not only gone, but it could be even to the worst extreme possible. And as I've been working through this passage, there are two things that come to my mind of how it can go from good to worse in one generation. And I want to give you the first one. It is, it is theological. It is um, outside of the context that is here, but it's certainly relevant to it. And then I want to get to one that I see within the passage but the first thing that pops in my mind, the reality of it is, is this. It's the first thing there that blank for you. It is original sin. Original sin, and, and this is something that I just want to navigate through for a moment with us. This is how it can go from good to horrible like that. And so, okay, parents, let's just engage on this. You got children. Have you ever realized that you don't have to teach your children to sin. Did you ever go up to your son and say, okay, now, Billy, here's what I want you to do. When your sister grabs a toy, okay, hold tight. Now pull, 
pull towards you and say mine, okay? Say it with me, mine, you know. No, Billy, you're not doing it hard enough. Now, come on, mine. Good, now grab the toy and hit her with it. Oh, come on, harder than that, you know. You don't have to teach them this. In fact, sometimes you see it and you're like, wow, like where did that come from? And here's the answer, it's original sin. All of us, the, the text mentions have this issue of sin within us and even David mentioned in the scriptures it was from the moment of conception we are doomed from the womb the text says we have this nature of sin within us and and Jeremiah the prophet says you know what if we wonder about our heart the heart of man is deceitful above all things desperately wicked we have problems. We are sinners by nature, and here's how this works out. A dog barks because it's a dog. It doesn't become a dog when it barks. Consequently, we sin because we are sinners. We don't become a sinner when we sin. We already were sinners. So guess what happens naturally we sin. And how do we know that sin was fully present after the first sin of Adam and Eve? I want you to think through this one. So the very first sin of all mankind is when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the garden that they were forbidden to take from. Now just think through the context of the Old Testament. So here, that was the first sin. They took of the fruit that God said no. What was the second sin that was recorded in Scripture? Think about it. It was murder. Like, Really? From taking fruit to murder in one generation? Yeah. And the reason being is because sin is fully present in all of us. From the first moment. I want to give you three quick application points, and then we're going to get to something I believe from the text that is extremely telling and revealing. Here's, a, here's an application point. Number one, don't overlook sin's internal influence in your life. I know this may not be a popular subject we hear about every day, but let me just be plain as an ambassador for Jesus Christ with us here this morning. Folks, we all deal with sin, all of us. And the one word that I must make sure I don't say is never. Oh, I would never. Oh, I could never do that. But why not? Because it is a potential, and we must never estimate sin's internal influence in our lives. We cannot take it lightly. The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands pay attention or he will fall. Or we've heard in our vernacular, would you say it with me? The bigger they are, the... Yeah. We can't overlook its influence in our lives. We need to be vigilant. We need to be alert. Here's a second one to think about. Don't overlook sin's internal influence in the life of your child. I know there's some lovely-hearted parents that are here. Well, not my little sugar plum. Yes, your little sugar plum. 
I'm sure Adam and Eve could have said, well, our little sweetie Cain would never do anything like that. Or Hezekiah's little blossom, Manasseh, no. And the reality is there are moms and dads that try to do everything they can and things were going well. And yet sometimes their kids can go bad. And the truth of the matter is everyone, every child personally, eventually has an issue of sin that they will need to resolve and they don't need anything bad to fuel it. You realize for Adam and Eve, they couldn't say those stinking neighbor kids down the road or that doggone rap music, I knew that would do it. Or the educational system ruined it for Cain. Or those video games with the violence, and I'm not downplaying that these things aren't issues, but I'm saying we don't need that help because it's in here. And our kids deal with it too, and we need to be vigilant about that. I'll just give you a little illustration of this. I don't have to look far for sin illustrations, you know. Uh, Just recently, our two young boys were, um, their birthdays are a day apart. And um, how are we going to navigate this, you know? So we want them to have their own day with their own presence and not lump them together. We want them to feel special individually. So I don't know which one, if I should wrap each one. I'll, I'll just let you know. So our younger one has his birthday first, and that probably is for the better. And so he gets in the lineup. He has his own party, and, and oh, he's loving it. It's all about him, and he opens all of his gifts, and I'm telling you, he's on cloud nine. Woo, this is everything I ever wanted. He said, this is just so great. And, and our second born, our second son, the, the oldest son, is he's, you know, kind of biting his tongue and living through it, and it's okay, and And he realizes his day is tomorrow, and so the next day comes, and he opens some of his presents. And everything's okay. Our younger one's doing just fine until this one present is opened, and it is a spaceship. And instantly, our little six-year-old boy stands up, and he starts crying, and he walks away. I didn't get anything I wanted, he said. Like, what? What? So sin is present in our children's lives. And and in a way, we look at it and we may laugh when we see their temper tantrum or, you know, we see some evidence of deceit and we say, oh, kids will be kids and boys will be boys. And the reality is, though, folks, we need to be very keen as parents and grandparents to sniff out issues that our kids may be dealing with. We can't overlook sin's internal influence in life of your child. Here's the third one, and, uh, and then we're going to get on to the next thing, which I think is absolutely riveting, and that is we must constantly fight the undertow of sin. It's there. Whether you visibly see it on the surface or not, it doesn't matter. And, and I'm reminded of um, vacationing as a child in the Atlantic Ocean. And, and I remember um, 
walking out and there was a specific area, this only this one area to swim because that's where the lifeguard was. And, and you couldn't see visibly on the surface of the water that there was an undertow. And when we got out there, it wasn't about 10 minutes and, and the, the lifeguard's blowing his whistle and he says, get back over here. And I, and I look and I realize that the swim area is over here and we're way over here. And I thought, how did that happen? And, and, and I start to walk back. I realize I'm going against a current. I feel something against me. And whether we see it on the surface or not, there is this undertow of sin. And it's so easily to be pulled and to drift subtly without noticing. And if we don't combat it personally and incessantly help our kids, we will naturally drift. It is just the nature that we have within us. There is no standing still. If we don't push forward, we will fall backward. That's just the reality of it. One of my favorite verses that I think every parent needs to have in their arsenal is this right here. It is 2 Timothy 2.22, and write it down and hold on to it, moms and dads. 2 Timothy 2.22, here's what it says. Flee the evil desires of youth, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee what's wrong, pursue what is right, and pursue it with others that are going in the same direction. And if we, our children, are not running away from wrong and running toward what is right, we will end up in the undertow and go where sin naturally takes us. And without any help from the outside, things can go south in a hurry with the next generation, even with good parents, because we all have sin fully present in our hearts. It's original sin. However, I don't think this was the case with Manasseh. I think there was something bigger. And here's number two. How could this happen in one generation? How could we go from Hezekiah to Manasseh in one? Here's number two. Hezekiah's slogan changed. Hezekiah's slogan changed. I want to show you something dramatic. Last week we saw Hezekiah's slogan was this. Don't manage your idolatry, destroy it. That was last week. Don't manage your idolatry, destroy it. He meant business. He went in there. He kicked tail. He didn't say let's reduce our dependency on idolatry. By 30% in the next 10 years, he's like, no, we are done with it. It is gone. Don't manage your idolatry, destroy it. And Hezekiah's new slogan, and I'm going to prove it to you right here, his new slogan these last 15 years of his life was this. It's all about me. Now, you've got to see this. I'm going to show you two examples of this slogan shift. And if you would look at 2 Kings in, in chapter 20, and, and I just want you to see there was a period of time when, when God said, Hezekiah, I'm not going to have you die now. You're going to get 15 more years. And, and here's what he did. There were some people from Babylon that came, and Hezekiah brought them in, and it ended up 
I'm going to read from 2 Kings. In a moment, we're going to look at 2 Chronicles. It said, Hezekiah received these envoys from Babylon. He showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his armory, everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. So here, God saves his life, says, I'm going to give you 15 more years. People from Babylon come to say, hey, what's up with Hezekiah? And Hezekiah says, let me show you everything I've got. Here's how it reads in 2 Chronicles 32, and I think we have it up on the screen for you. This is a parallel passage. Notice what it says. In those days, Hezekiah became ill, was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. Check this out. Hezekiah's heart, are you seeing it there? Hezekiah's heart was what? It was proud. He did not respond to the kindness shown him. But when envoys from Babylon were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, check this, God left Hezekiah to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. And you know what was in his heart? He said, look at everything I've got, gang. Look at all of my wealth. Look at all of my possessions. Look at all of this that I have. Now, if you remember from last week, it wasn't a few years prior, he was stripping the gold and silver out of the temple to give it to the Assyrians. You remember that? Don't hurt us, don't hurt us. And if it weren't for God coming in and smiting 185,000 Assyrians, he would have had nothing. And somehow, in just a few years, he forgot that God gave him everything and he thought it was all about himself. He was proud. One has said, Hezekiah passed the test of persecution but failed the test of prosperity. The heart of humility was gone. It was no longer about worship of God but about the recognition of self and everything he had accrued. It was all about him. I want to show you number two. So here's what happened. Hezekiah said, it's all about me. He showed everyone from Babylon that came all of his possessions, and Isaiah the prophet stepped up to King Hezekiah and said, what did, what did these men say? Where did they come from? And he said, from a distant land. They came from Babylon. The prophet said, what did they see in your palace? And he said, they saw everything in my palace. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Now check this out. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, this is even more troubling, some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you will be taken away. They will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Gang, Isaiah told Hezekiah, because you have shown this off and shown your pride, everything's going to be gone. And your descendants will be castrated and serve the king of Babylon. And here's the most wretched thing I could ever imagine. And if you see it there on your screen, look at it with me. It is verse 19. After hearing this, there it is. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought 
Back it up. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Do you get it? So I'm not going to lose my stuff, right? And I, I won't be hurt. You're saying that it's the next generation that will? Okay, I can handle that. Really? Hezekiah didn't care about the impact on the next generation. He didn't care about the impact on the next generation. I, I, just 13 verses earlier, he was crying and pleading for his life, but when it came to those of his offspring, in this last 15 years of his life, it wasn't a big concern so long as his life ended with peace and security. And this just blows me away. Hezekiah's slogan radically changed from being God-centered to being self-centered. And the big problem, and this is what it was, the big problem is Manasseh was born in these last 15 years of his life. This is what Manasseh knew. That for Hezekiah, it was all about his possessions. He took all the credit. It was okay with the demise of the next generation as long as he died happy. And Manasseh was around for the last 12 years of his dad's life. And I have wrestled with this message from this point forward. Parents, let me be plain, if I may, for a few moments. And I don't know where you're at or where your kids are at or what's going on. I pray things are well, and I just want to elevate our parenting. Parenting is about kids. It's not about our money. It's not about our retirement. It's certainly not about our convenience. Parenting is about our kids, and I believe our country has messed this up to some degree when it's promoting that parenting's goal somehow has become personal identity and affluence. And parenting's goal is our kids. And I've just been burdened with this personally that if it comes to decisions that may hurt our convenience to help our children, it's got to be good by convenience. Now, I'll do what I need to do that's best for my kids and leave the rest up to God. And, and for some, this may mean some, some inconvenience and hurt. Like, let me throw a few things out. For some, it may mean, you know what, I need to decrease my hours at work. Because more than the extra money you make, that child of yours needs that extra time you take to make it. For some, it may be curbing your personal time, and, and you may come to a spot in your life and you realize, you know what, 
I don't need to do my hobbies all the time. Maybe what I need to do is make my kid my hobby. For some, it may mean selling some toys or investing some time or building that relationship more with your son or daughter. It may mean making a crazy career change of all things. It might mean even, you know what, let's downsize everything. Let's downsize the house. Let's downsize everything because we don't need all of this. may mean picking your family up from upstate New York and moving all the way out to Traverse City, Michigan. And going on a wing and a prayer. And you know what? You may look stupid to those around you. People may think, what are you doing? That's crazy. And if you're truly putting into your family the things that they genuinely need, I can tell you one thing, God doesn't think it's crazy. You may risk some retirement, you may risk some comfort, but better to risk things like that than to risk your child. Can I almost get like an amen or something out of that? Yeah, I know. I spoke with a pastor friend. He said his parents pulled him aside. They were paying $500 a month for a special life insurance policy that they wanted to pass along some money. They didn't have any money to give their kids when they died. They invested everything they had in their family. They were every game. They encouraged and nurtured their children all the way through. And, and he was telling me, he said, you know what? My parents came and they said, we don't have any inheritance for you. We're paying $500 a month for a special life insurance policy because we want each of you to have $100,000 when we die. And this guy said, he said, I looked at my parents and he said, do you really think I'm going to feel ripped off after all you've done for me? And I've talked to others who have gotten boatloads of money at the end. And it's never filled the hole that was left from parents who didn't invest what mattered most. Parents, you have the most important job in the entire world And we need to make sure that it truly is about who God has given us and not about the possessions, not about the convenience. And then church, I was thinking about this for us. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our convenience. And it's not about our possessions and our building, as nice as these things may be. It really is about those who come after us. I believe it with all my heart. I'm loving our developing direction as a ministry, thinking about, you know, we've had a great past, but will we have a great future? How about to make sure we invest in the next generation? I'm loving it. I, I just remembered my, I, my um, reminded my previous ministry, there was a time when a number of, the church was growing and things were happening and it was exciting and 
we got talking about this building project because we needed more room. And, and I remember we had a special meeting and we had a group over our home for a barbecue and it was so exciting. And, and I was throwing out the stats to them and how great things were and, and people were energized. And it came to this one point and I said, you know what? And so our leaders have been talking about this. We want to add on to our facility because we want to be able to make room for those who are coming in, and we want them to feel comfortable. And I'll never forget it. There was this one woman. She was an older gal, a part of our previous church um, building program about 40 years before. And instantly, the second I said this building program, and she, she just bellered right out, I don't want it. And everyone's silent. That I've had enough of building stuff. Why don't you just wait until I'm dead? And in my mind, I thought, well, at least now I know how to pray. <laughs> Not everything you think in your head is good, you know. I thought, what? I've had enough of those. And I just, I just believe God wants to challenge the church. This is not about comfort care. This is not about our convenience until the end or the good old days or reminiscing until the rapture. It really is about transferring our faith to the next generation. Passing this baton. And it may inconvenience us. It may push us beyond our comfort zone. We may be involved in things we're not used to or they may not make sense to us. And the reality is when we step out of our comfort zone, that's when we step into the faith zone and we really show we're passionate about getting our faith into the next generation's hands. When it comes to parenting, when it comes to church, these two things must be cast in stone, and here's your two finals. The credit goes to God. Unlike Hezekiah, let's not take credit for the things that God did. In fact, I really think we need to tell stories to our kids and to the next generation and tell them, you know what, everything we have is from God. Don't say, you know what, my genius in the whole mass of mutual funds has caused that. No, 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 no. Say, you know what? If it were up to me, I would have blown everything. And God was so generous. We got to point our kids to the real source of our stuff. It's God. You know, when you say, wow, look at this house. Well, in my whole grand scheme, no, 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 no. Let's just back it up and say, you know what? God was so kind. You should have seen how he pulled this stuff together. You should have seen how he provided and pointed all back to him. And Hezekiah should have done that. He should have said, if it were up to me, I would have stripped the whole country of its gold and given it all to Assyria. And God went past my stupidity and took care of that and blessed us anyways. Isn't he so good? And so all credit goes to God. Share stories with your kids of God's provision Let's make sure our next generation here at East Bay Calvary knows how good he's been to us. It's not because of us. Let them know that God is the only 
giver of all good things, and we give him the credit. And here's the second part of that. The credit goes to God. The concern is for the next generation. And after sharing, it all comes from God. Help them know, I'd give it all up for you. I give it all up because you're worth more than my stuff. You're worth more than my convenience. You're worth more than my pleasure. You're worth more than my comfort zone, and I'd give it all up. It doesn't have to be my way. I don't care to end the last 15 years of my life at ease. I want you to love God. I want you to pass it on to the next generation. The credit goes to God. The concern is for the next generation. It's not about me. Moms and dads, if you're mom or dad here today, you still have kids in your home, even if they're 45, especially if they're 45. Would you stand with me for a moment? Moms and dads, moms and dads, stand up, please. We've got a lot of them here. God bless you. Wow. If you're a grandparent or an aunt and uncle and you are helping to raise a child in your home, would you stand up too? We have a huge responsibility. People, you're going to be counterculture to not focus on your possessions, to not focus on your comfort, but to focus on transferring your faith to the next generation. You will look like an oddity in our world. Would God help you do it? God bless you to do it. Church family, you haven't noticed, we got a lot of kids here, and I love it. We have a responsibility too, and would you stand with me, church family? Come on. It's not about us. It's not about our possessions. It's not about our bank account. It's not about our building. We have the biggest treasure in this ministry right now. And it's a whole lot of young people. It's called a future. What a gift, huh? And may God ignite in us a passion to give the credit to him, to focus our concern on a good handoff of this baton to the next generation. Can we bow our head and close our eyes? I just want to pray. And with this, we'll be done. God, all glory to you for the precious gifts that we have. May you ignite in our lives this true desire that they see that it's not about us and that all credit goes to you for 
everything. And Lord, in your kindness, you've given us the next generation that's among us. And would you also give us a passion to touch them, to hand this baton off, that they may not be Manassas who see people in their last years all wrapped up in self. But God, may we truly be passionate accepting uncomfortable situations, accepting inconvenience, things not the way we like, because there's something more important, and it's them, and it's you. Do special things in our home. Bless our parents, our families. And God, please do special things in this place that we call East Bay Calvary. Continue to grow us to have a good transition. And may your church and your glory continue to resound forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Friends, as you go, make sure you get to see DC and gang out in the foyer. They have tickets for sale for our concert. And you can just encourage them, even if you don't buy a ticket. They'll be back again a few more weeks. Make sure you participate with that. And take time to enjoy each other before you head out the door. Have a great week. See you next Sunday. God bless.